I'm Nick Burns. This is Radioactive, and we are your show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives everywhere on your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL. On the show tonight, you know, this is something that comes around again and again, but the Red Cross needs blood. And I want to find out if there's a pent-up demand, and I want to talk about all the ways that you all can be a part of that if you want to donate some blood. That's on the show tonight. Also on the show tonight, we're going to talk about an ongoing art project, Project Art Heals Utah. This is a collaborative, sustainable mosaic and art project that's ongoing and all set up to acknowledge and mourn the losses and all the various experiences that everyone has been through with the ongoing, I want to say ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Later on the show, we'll talk about HB 11. This is the bill uh, getting a lot of getting a lot of attention locally and nationally. This is HB 11 fourth substitute that basically bans transgender sports for high school K through 12 kids. We want to spend some time talking about that, talking about the governor's veto, talking about the override session for the veto, and talking about all of our collective tax money that's going to go into a fund that's probably a lost cause. But for now, the Red Cross needs blood. Uh, they need donations. And joining us on the show is the Northern Utah Chapter Executive Director of the Red Cross, Michael Smaldon. Hi, Michael. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So blood drives, this comes and goes regularly. And I wonder, do we have an extreme need for blood because of all the pent-up surgeries and you know, healthcare that didn't get done? during the extreme pandemic days? Or is something different in play? No, no, that's exactly right. Um, as hospitals are starting to do more elective surgeries um, that were put off due to the pandemic, um, we are seeing the increased need for blood um, nationwide um, due to that reason. And of course, um, you know, increasing in car accidents and uh, just different incidences um, that are, you know, for the need of blood um, that uh, happened during this time of the season that people are starting to, to travel, spring break, um, and different things like that, um, always the increased blood during this time. Have we seen a change over the years? I know that it used to be increasingly popular that if you needed some sort of elective surgery, you would donate your own blood. But of course, that's very different than somebody being in an accident. Yeah, that trend is kind of uh, stopped. And usually that's, that happens for uh, people who specifically need um, their own blood during a procedure um, due to some sort of um, allergen or anything like that, that um, prevents them or can increase, um, you know, due to an, um, other blood products um, that could be used. Interesting. So today, of course, we saw a new president up at the U, um, sort of an inauguration or a coronation, depending on one's view of higher education, uh, with Dr. Taylor Randall. And you used this opportunity to uh, initiate a blood drive up at the U. So tell me how that was going today. Yeah. So we, you know, we are looking to increase our partnerships and um, with the the U of U, and um, it was a great opportunity to work with the new president and to show, you know, um, that blood is needed everywhere. Um, and we can uh, work with our universities to work 
to get young people to get engaged in the process um, to be better blood donors um, and have greater blood uh, sponsor opportunities. So Michael, I, I'm curious, statistically, is it younger people or older people who tend to be the ones who donate blood? Is there a specific age demographic that has more openness to uh, opening up a vein, so to speak? You know, um, older, you know, older donors tend to be the uh, more regular donors. Um, they're the ones who tend to um, schedule their appointments more often. Um, but we do a lot of blood drives with um, high schools and colleges, um, and we could tend to do those more often. So, um, but, you know, as we were um, in the pandemic, especially during um, the last couple of years, that was really hard to, to do, especially in high schools when um, a lot of uh, virtual learning was happening. And we weren't able to do blood drives in those high schools and college areas. Okay. And I also understand you have something new at Hill Air Force Base, some sort of Red Cross support desk. And I don't know much about that. So tell me. Yeah. So to work with our service to the armed forces um, and our and our service members and veterans, um, we decided, you know, to work with Hill Air Force Base to open up a service desk um, that can really work with those service members um, before um, they get deployed. So we tend to work with those service members. Um, to be able to get um, information, show them like how it works um, with our hero network. So the hero network is um, in case there's an emergency at home um, or abroad, um, they are able to get contacted through our, our hero network system. Um, so if, say uh, someone is deployed, um, but their wife is at home pregnant, um, she goes into labor, um, she contacts, you know, someone contacts the hero network, um, Red Cross here will do the, the vetting and then we'll be able to get that information back to that service member so we can get them back home so they could be there. Oh, OK. That's kind of cool, actually. I wonder, speaking of the military, is any of the blood that the Red Cross collects ending up in Ukraine? Is that something? Is this overseas or not? Just local? Yeah, right now it's here locally here at home. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, I, you know, blood, you know, occurs, you know, uh, here. Um, I know the military has their own process um, for doing blood um, overseas. Um, but right, yeah, we do blood here um, in the United States. So before I let you go, I'm curious, for people who are not used to this or squeamish or unsure about donating blood, what's involved? I mean, what actually happens when someone shows up and said, I'd like to donate? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Um, the process starts um, at home with you eating a, a healthy meal um, and making sure that you are hydrated. Um, and then when you show up to the to the um, to the the site, um, you're able to um, you know register. Um, they'll do uh, your blood pressure. They'll do a, a needle prick um, just to test your blood um, for your hemoglobin, and um, and then you go off and do your your blood draw, um, which usually happens quickly. Um, it's usually, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and then you get some snacks afterwards um, and then you're sent on your way. So um, it's pretty simple. And how much is, how much blood does, is, I don't know quite how to ask this. When someone donates blood, how much do y'all take? A pint? Half a pint? <laughs> yeah, just a pint. Uh, we don't take too much. Um, 
and you know you could read you know do it every 56 days so um unless you do um you know power reds which is they do double blood red cells um you're able to you know donate um every 112 days uh, i do double red so um because i'm a, a o negative um donor so i you know that's a high um, needed blood type and so i uh, i do double red blood cells so we can um get that blood out to the needed individuals. And for folks who can't donate, I know there's been a lot of discussion in the media over many years about men who are gay, but other people who shouldn't or can't donate? Yeah, so, um, you know, when it comes to, especially for for men who are gay, um, I will say that the American Red Cross and others, um, other blood producers are working with the FDA right now um, so we can get that change. That is a big thing that the Red Cross um, is strongly advocating for um, to the FDA for, for that change. And there are some current um, uh, things that are happening and in the works to push that change um, kind of going forth. But to, to, to the other half of your question, um, there's other things you can do. You can volunteer with the Red Cross um, at a blood drive or you can um, help financially um, if you can. Okay. Um, and I, but I presume, I mean, I'm someone who has an autoimmune disorder, so I know y'all don't want my blood. So I think that's something people ought to be aware of, right? That folks like you, healthy, good, et cetera, that's a little bit different, that, that not everyone based on their own individual health can help even if they want to. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to make sure you can always call 1-800-RED-CROSS um, and they can help walk you through the steps of if you're eligible or not. Um, so a lot of people who might think they're not eligible um, and don't donate blood because they make assumptions, um, you can always call 1-800-RED-CROSS and we can walk you through that process. And then um, a lot of people uh, realize that they are eligible to donate um, and are able to. Very good. So, Michael Smaldon, you are the executive director of the Northern Utah chapter of the Red Cross. How should people get in touch? You mentioned a phone number. We'll put that in the show notes. Is there a website or something else we should push people to? Yep. You can go to www.redcross.org slash Utah, um, and you can go there and sign up to donate. Very good. And again, None of us can predict when there might be a car wreck or some other natural disaster or another earthquake or whatever it might be. And the Red Cross, you guys, you always seem to always be there. So for folks who can donate blood, this might be a good time. So Michael Smaldon, Northern Utah chapter of the Red Cross Executive Director, thank you for taking time to chat with us. No, oh, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. This is your Community Connection 90.9 FM. I'm Nick Burns. Now on the show, Dr. Emily Hagen with Project Art Heals Utah. Dr. Hagen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So it looks like you came straight from the operating theater. I did indeed. Go straight back too. Oh, with but with medical professionals these days, how, I, I'm always amazed that so many doctors find so much time to do so many good things above and beyond the 20 hours a day that you're working on fixing and helping people. So how does that work for you all? Is there, is there like a gene or something that you all have? I don't know. Fortunately, it's not actually 20 hours a day because I don't think that's sustainable, but ah. it's finding things that, that fill our tank too, I think. And that's what this has been more of a passion project. So Okay. 
So do you do art on your own? Zero, absolutely none. <laughs> oh, okay. I just wondered. So, yeah. So thank you for joining us on the show. Again, you are up at the University of Utah, um, often in the operating room, but we want to talk about Project Art Heals Utah. And this is, quote, collaborative, sustainable mosaic art to collectively acknowledge and mourn the losses and experiences we have endured due to the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. So this is you, but who all is this? Is this everyone or? This is everyone. This is all inclusive. I mean, this has been, the pandemic has, everybody has a pandemic journey of some sort. And it could be reflected in a loss or a hardship or just any experience. There's, I feel like there's nobody that's been untouched by the pandemic. And so the goal is to, you know, if if this project speaks to you, then we invite you to participate. And and again, you've got, I mean, this, I just want to read this list here. Empty vaccine vials, um, clean, clean medical waste, physical objects, virtual mementos. I mean, it sounds like anything goes. Anything goes, yeah. So what's I'm I'm just curious, and I have to ask because uh, I am curious. What are some of the oddest or most unusual things that people have contributed? What stands out to you? I don't think there's anything odd. It's more of um, what I found is as people have donated their physical mementos to be included in the most the actual physical mosaic or the stories they share that go with the mementos or just a strictly virtual mementos. It's more of being very moved by people's stories. So not odd, but 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 moved. Moving. I mean, there are, there are people that have just posted a picture of somebody that they they cared about that's no longer here because of COVID. There's there's a young woman who posted a picture of her partner's bandana who shortly after after the pandemic started and the lockdown started in 2020, he took his own life. There was so much stress and um, loss of employment and isolation. And then there's also just funny little trinkets like, like, um, you know, little food objects that are very small, less than one inch that are just little plastic erasers that say, Hey, I just miss getting together. I miss getting together with my friends or family to have meals. So lots of different things coming in and they'll be in the art piece. And that's probably the most exciting thing. Okay. And I want to get into that where people can see this and how people can donate. But Dr. Hagen, for you, what about what about your journey through the pandemic and what you either have donated to this project or would like to donate? Sure. Tell me about your story. Well, so this all started after I got my first vaccine in December of 2020. It was so positive and hopeful feeling. And I asked for the vial because I wanted to make something out of it. But wow. I I um I I have an engineering background and I'm I'm a math science girl, anesthesia. So I've, I didn't know how to make anything. So I just kind of set my sights on something grander to in, include the community and, and honor science and honor, you know, healthcare workers and honor patients and honor communities. So, so that's where I started, you know, collecting these various things. And, and in the end, my, my little trinket, my little physical memento that I put in is a very, it's a small piece of a badge holder that has a stethoscope with a heart on it that the university, University of Utah Health gave to all of us several years ago. And it was just to really acknowledge what our community's been through and also acknowledge what healthcare workers have been through as they continue to show up during very tenuous and ever-changing and difficult times. 
Right. I mean, I think most of us used to love doctors, and now you see a whole contingent of people who don't seem to like doctors all of a sudden. In terms of in terms of the collection of all these objects, physical objects, virtual ob- objects, have you seen changes in what people are interested in donating as the waves of the pandemic have come and gone? Are, are people thinking of thinking of what they want to donate differently, I wonder? You know, it's hard to say is when you first talk about this project, it people get pretty excited. And then I think they well, they want some contemplative time to figure out what it is that's important to them to put into the physical artwork or on the website. So, you know, what? but I, I will say everything regardless has, has been quite moving. And, and the, you know, one of the take homes too, is that there's no hierarchy of grief or experiences during this. Like if, if someone feels it, then it's it's real and we invite them to participate. And does this include, you know, media like recordings or are you looking for two-dimensional and three-dimensional art? Well, we're looking for so the physical mementos should be hard surfaced, can lie flat. They don't have to be flat, but can lie flat and um to be less than one or two inches, but the 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 virtual mementos that can either go along with the physical or be a standalone virtual memento can be a picture, a poem, a video, a recording. It can be anything. So this the site has been created by the Eccles Health Sciences Library team, was an amazing group of humans, and they've made it so pretty much any media can be uploaded and then posted. In all honesty, I'm kind of tearing up just hearing about this. You do have a deadline. You do want objects to be donated by the end of April, so folks have another few weeks. Um, we'll put the the we'll put the information in the show notes, of course. Artheals.utah.edu. When you had this idea back after you got your first vaccine shot, December 2020, how hard was it to gain traction for this? Did you find all kinds of folks on board right away? Or were were people so stressed out and so busy they thought, oh, Dr. Hagen's going off on her engineering track again? Um, maybe a little of both because <laughs> the bandwidth was kind of low, you mm. know, and um, but what I found for me during the planning and then working with, I've met amazing people along the way that it's kind of created some bandwidth. Um, so it was, it's just my, my mantra for this Planning, planning this project has been patient perseverance. That's what I just have told myself, patient perseverance. And, and we've, you know, again, the University of Utah Health is on board. The Eccles Health Science Library has been amazing in terms of helping. And then this wonderful, creative artist, Heidi Kalega, who is is in Denver, but is a University of Utah alum, is um, joined the team in, in fall. And, and we're also su- supported by a grant supported by the Sustainable Campus Initiative Fund at the University of Utah. So it, patients' perseverance is, is paying off. We've got more people that are excited about it. Patience and perseverance, isn't that kind of being in healthcare these days? Probably, yes. So we've got some practice <laughs> doing, the, doing that. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your own experience here as we're sort of, I don't know if we're done with Omicron or we've got another wave of the sub-variant coming, but what's your life like these days up at the U? You know, it's feeling more back to normal-ish, but in a different way. I mean, we're all still wearing our N95s when we're putting breathing tubes in, where the masks stay on here because people get to choose to be at a concert setting or things like that, or, but you don't get to choose to be in a hospital. So these masks are staying on up here 
um, for a while at least. And I will say we're, we're extremely busy right now because there was a lot of these backlogged cases and doctor's visits and, and all, all kinds of things that were put on hold as we dealt with the various surges that are now, you know, taking the forefront and, and we're busy. And so this art project, folks have tell, well, thank you for that. I, I respect all that you do in medicine. My sister has retired from a career in an ER room um, on the on the psychology side, um, on the mental health side. Um, and I used to work in healthcare in, on the maintenance side myself. So thank you. I'm 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 pleased to be in higher education these days, not in healthcare. Um, it takes a village though. All those all those oh, roles are important. Oh, totally. But yeah. Dr. Hagen, will this be entirely online or will there be a physical place to go see this show? So there will be, what's great is that there will be a physical place and there will always be an online um, website that goes along with it. And it will be archived forever through the Eccles Health Science Library. So the hope is that as we collect these mementos and the artist Heidi starts working on it in May, the hope is to debut the art in June of 2022 on the University of Utah campus. And then we'd love for it to travel. There's nobody's making money on this piece. Like this is a community, this is a community piece. It's a collaborative and community and we'd love for it to travel beyond that wow. as their interest arises. I mean, it's such a fantastic idea. Um, so I don't know if it keeps you up at night, but thank you for your work on this. Um, it's fairly amazing. So again, April 30th, 2022 is the participation deadline. In-person memento contributions, mail-in contributions, virtual contributions, artheals.utah.edu. And I hope when the show's up and running in a couple few months, maybe you can come back and talk about it again. Sounds great. So in the meantime, best wishes up in the ER. Thank you for continuing to wear masks. I've heard many people say the University of Utah hospitals are the cleanest place in Utah. So thank you for that. You bet. Sounds good. Thank you. D thank you, Dr. Emily Hagen. Project Art Heals Utah. Get your COVID stories and mementos to her. Everybody, please, by April 30th. When we come back, Sue Robbins of Equality Utah's Transgender Advisory Council and the special session to override Governor Cox's veto of HB 11. And to get us there on Radioactive, how about Modern Woman by Erin Ray, right here on your community connection, KRCL. One in four Utahns has a criminal record. If you or someone you know needs help with the expungement process, visit cleanslateutah.org, a new nonprofit working to ensure that Utahns don't miss out on opportunities because of their past. Hey, it's Becky, KRCL's office manager. Radiothon is coming up on April 22nd. I'm a fan of getting things done on time or even better, early. Be like me. Donate early at krcl.org. My name's Richard. I'm the host of a show called I Don't Sound Like Nobody on KRCL. I play 1950s rock and roll and its precursors each and every Friday from 1 to 3 a.m. Join this KRCL Nightbird and our flight crew as we dance the night away every Friday morning from 1 to 3 a.m. only on KRCL 90.9 FM. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. 
This is, of course, your Community Connection 90.9 FM. And joining us now on Radioactive, Sue Robbins. She is, of course, a Radioactive Community Co-Host Emeritus and the Quality Utah's Transgender Advisory Council. And what we want to talk about is this veto override session for HB 11, Fourth Substitute Student Eligibility in Interscholastic Activities. Sue, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on, Nick. And that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> it well, yeah, it is. But, you know, I, I want to ask a little bit about the bill. I want to ask a little bit about moral panics. And I know in terms of what you do at Equality Utah, you all are in the middle of this ongoing. But this is HB 11, Fourth Substitute Student Eligibility and Interscholastic Activities, vetoed by the governor. Originally, there, it wasn't clear there would be an, enough votes to override it. Now it looks like there is. But as a place to jump in here, it seems to me this isn't really about sports at all. No, I don't feel it is. Uh, What we've seen over the last several years, it used to be the LGBT community became the red meat issue, so to speak, uh, as far as marriage equality. It kept being a battle and everybody kept trying to keep us from having it. And then in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell that we, in fact, could have marriage equality. Then uh, what it turned to is it started to turn to transgender people in bathrooms. They tried to do this fear that transgender individuals who had transitioned uh, to, to live their life as females were going in the female restroom and were going to attack all women and attack your girls. And that took hold a little. But when North Carolina actually passed a law, The NCAA pulled the tournament out. Companies started to pull out. They lost $6 billion. The governor lost his reelection. They changed the law back. Uh, It it sent a warning to other states that this was not something you want to do. So then they had to figure out how can we raise the Fuhrer level even greater? And I think they actually did find something that we found has been real painful is they said, let's specifically go for transgender individuals because nobody really gets them. They don't understand that. And then let's go for kids because everybody wants to protect their kids. So across the country, we've seen these medical bills that want to take away health care from kids because we're doing irreversible damage to their bodies is what they're saying. And the sports bills, because yeah, these these transgender girls are going in and beating up your girls and taking away their scholarships. And these are boilerplate bills. They are run by the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, pushed out to all the states and taken hold, you know, mainly in red states. Uh, you know, they get presented in uh, purple and blue states and generally don't get any traction there. So it's mainly the red states where they get going. I mean, it's it's surprising and not surprising at the same time. I mean, there's a long history of these moral panics. If you think back, gosh, since World War II, I can think of 1950s and McCarthyism. I can think of Elvis Presley's hips. I can think of hippies. Then we had the ERA and women's rights. And by the 80s, as you said, Sue, gays and lesbians became a target of hate and attack. Communism came back again. Um, 1990s, right here in Utah, we had the gay straight alliance clubs in high schools. Um, And of course, as you said, this century gay marriage. And along the way, what, Muslims, video gaming. Um, And now it's this transgender and like you said, bathrooms and sports. Um, And I'm not even touching on prejudice and hate against people like the Irish or the Chinese or the Jews. But those are all the ongoing things. They've been getting attacked for years and it hasn't gone away and you know it 
it's just like there's there's layers of attacks going in here just to raise this panic to try and get people to back them. And it's just amazing that we have a segment of our society that has to find hate in order to find meaning. And is, is it really just power and not principle? Or do you think these folks really do think a transgender person in a, in a bathroom, et cetera, is a problem? Or is this all just a way to sort of hide what's really going on, you know, paving the road for the rich and whatnot, to use a phrase? Well, I think there's layers to it um, because, like I said, there's an educational issue here. If you don't know a transgender person, you may not get it. You may, uh, you know, when I first transitioned, it was 2014, and the survey said that 8% of people knew someone who was transgender. Next year, the survey said 16%, and we haven't even cracked 50%. I believe we're at 48% right now. So that means 52% of people have not met anyone that they know is transgender. Someone may not be out to them. Uh, so that means they're not getting educated by someone's presence. They're just seeing what they see in the news, and they run with it. And the way our news is today, obviously, there's a lot of partisan news sites and news channels out there that are extreme. So if that's what those people are absorbing, then that's what they're going to believe in the light of personal or in outside of personal experience changing things. And personal experience does change things. We've been able to introduce kids to legislators and start changing their hearts and minds. It is meaningful. So as a transgender woman, is was that the most effective, I want to say, play up at the legislature in terms of pushing back on those moral panic arguments was to actually just introduce folks to a kid? I think that is part of it. There's education. So the sports bill is the harder one because it still presses against people's beliefs in science. So you get this base level of science that uh, everybody is XX or XY. And if you're XY, then you're just going to be big, strong and fast no matter what. They don't they don't look at variations and everything. They just look at an extreme case and apply it to everybody. But that is really a low-level understanding of chromosomes. And it's really the DNA and the SRY gene. And we can keep going deeper in what comes into play. And then it takes hormones to even activate that. So if we have our youth uh, where we put them on a hormone therapy that blocks their hormone development at the beginning of puberty then all those potential changes don't happen. It's not like there's a gene that makes a boy's face start growing hair in the absence of testosterone. It's the testosterone that activates that. And then how thick the beard may be for that boy is based on the genes. You know? So it's I think people are just grasping that high level XXXY. And then if you try and challenge it, you're challenging their intellect. So it's not a we found, or I find, that that's not a good way to pe change people's minds because if they feel like you're challenging their intellect, then they're just going to push back and not be receptive. But if you bring youth in, in particular, because we love our kids, everybody loves kids. Um, you know, me standing in front of a legislator might start slowly changing their mind. You bring in a youth who is thriving and happy because they've transitioned it impacts them so much more. You raised a bunch of good points there, I think, along the way. I mean, I can remember, I think his name was Jorgensen, who transitioned to a woman after World War II. He was a soldier in the army, very famous. Christina Jorgensen. Yep. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, and she was all over the news back, you know, I want to say 1957, 1960. And there was a lot of discussion about the Olympics and all the, you know, those pesky Soviets were just pushing, you know, people who weren't really women to compete so they could win more medals. I mean, this kind of this particular moral panic is nothing new. But I wonder for you, Sue, you, you wrote recently in, in uh, Q Salt Lake, you had an op-ed and talked about this being hard on you personally. And I would think that would be difficult. You know, this is an issue of close, close to your heart and it is your professional work, but you have to face these folks or had to face these folks every day up on the hill. I can't imagine that was easy. No, and uh, just for clarity, I am a volunteer with Equality Utah. I'm an electrical engineer by day. Um, okay. So Troy Williams is, faces him a little more than I do, which is I'm thankful because he kind of takes the brunt before I come in and once he softens them up, so to speak. But it is hard because when you go into those rooms and you're trying to get people to understand and you're trying to get them to maybe drop a bill or make it softer, if you know that you can't get them to drop it, you can't attack them personally. You have to be able to play into their schedule because they're running around uh, real busy with all the bills. It's you feel like, hey, I'm the marginalized oppressed person and I'm trying to have a comp having to accommodate everything for them. I'm having to accommodate their schedule. I'm having to accommodate their questions because they're the ones driving the 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 discussion when we meet. And I'm having to not get upset when they say something that's really harmful. I have to always stay in that place that I'm trying to educate them. So I have to, you know, if they say something that's very demeaning or very dehumanizing. I have to kind of suck it up and try and come back with an educational point to try and take them away from that uh, is not an easy thing. It's somehow I've been gifted with the ability to get through it most of the time, maybe go home and kind of let the stress out later and just pack it in while I'm in those conversations. But it is uh, it is not something I would ever put upon our youth to do. I mean, we bring them in for quick individual meetings, but if they were to be engaged all the time, I just can't imagine a youth going through it because they're getting that at school from their peers. They may be feeling like they don't belong at school. Home is a safe place. And then we take them out of home and run them up in front of a, a representative who may be saying really awful things to them. Yeah. Well, thank you for your visibility. I know there were sort of all eyes on you at some of those last minute, last hour sessions that you became extremely visible, I think. So thank you for that. And I'm sure many trans kids can look up to you and thank you for being the visible one. And I want to ask about risk for trans kids. But real quickly, Governor Cox had this in his veto letter. 75,000 kids participating in school sports, four are trans, one is a transgender female. So are those numbers accurate to you? This is one child one family, uh, like you say, a kid that's already marginalized by many, and we're doing all this. Wow. Yep. It's those are the numbers from the Utah High School Athletic Association. I know when presented to the bill sponsor, she keeps wanting to say, well, there's more. And then she theorizes there's some that aren't out. And then she brings up some that may not be playing in high school. So it muddies the water. But these are the ones who are reported through the High School Athletic Association. So those are the numbers we can put our finger on and we can identify, and it's one girl. So we had all this discussion in the legislature. We've had the entire transgender community feeling the stress of the oppressive talk 
and we are going to put $500,000 up to be used for lawsuits over one girl who no one can probably even name because if she was winning, everybody would know who she is. It would be in the news with her name. But since we don't know her name, I, I can easily presume that she is not being successful. I hope she's having fun and she's enjoying the, the experience with her friends because that's the goal. But everybody keeps going in and saying, well, if a transgender girl wins, then that's unfair. You don't get to have a share of any of that is what it comes down to. Be invisible and we might find you palatable. Oh, back in the closet. We are talking with Sue Robbins, Equality Utah's uh, on or of, I should say, Equality Utah's Transgender Advisory Council, a position for her that is voluntary. She works by day as an electrical engineer, and it's all on Radioactive on your community connection. I'm Nick Burns. And Sue, you know, the Utah High School Athletic Association already stipulates transgender females have to go through a year of transition hormone therapy. Um, but of course, that doesn't seem like that's enough for some people. But before I ask you about the session coming up on Friday, over half of trans kids have attempted suicide. It's, it's shocking that we are doing this when the risks for so many of these kids, and there aren't many, but the risk is incredibly high. It is. And there's a, there was a study done by the, uh, the, Amer the American uh, Society of Suicide Prevention. And um, I'm going to be off by probably one number on each of these, but Kids that are transgender kids that are affirmed by their families, by their families have a 4% uh, suicidality rate. If they are not affirmed by their families, it's 58%. So that 54% difference tells us what affirmation does for our youth. So when we're discussing their very existence at the legislative level, and in the news, and every title they see in the news, it slams on the front page. We can only imagine, based on those numbers, what the impact is to the transgender youth who are sitting back and hearing that stuff. As if being a kid isn't hard enough already going through puberty, even if you're cis, straight, et cetera, right? I mean, really. Oh. Um. I, you know, we could talk about this, like you said, there's, some, there's, there's much we could talk about all day on this issue. Um, but looking ahead to this session that's upcoming, I think it's worth pointing out that many people are saying, including some reporters at the Trib and others, are saying that really, it isn't really transgender kids that matter. It's that these politicians fear someone farther on the right will try to out-primary them. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts are on that since, you're, since you've been up on the Hill and met these folks. Is there really this fear that somebody more hard right could take their job? Wow. I am hearing a lot of that through the grapevine. On the uh, Health and Human Services Committee that had the medical bill that they never brought up, I hear uh -huh. all of them are being primaried from the right. Wow. Or at least the ones who had a challenger that filed. I haven't reviewed the filings. I'm hearing it broadly and related to this uh, veto vote. And from what I can best take away is the votes that have moved from, I don't support the ban to I'm gonna override the veto are people who are being driven by challenges from the right. Because originally it didn't seem like there was enough votes to override the veto when it passed at the last hours, right? 
So there wasn't. It, the Senate was a 16 to 13, so they needed four votes to move. And the House was 46 to 29, so they also needed four votes to move. Yeah. So that's not a huge amount, but four votes is not insignificant. And uh, so that tells me at least four people in each body are probably have committed to changing their vote in order for them to decide to call a special session. Yeah. And so that's Friday. So there's much to look forward to. And thank you in advance for your work. Today, the Eagle Forum, uh, they had a rally, uh, the hyperactive conservative Eagle Forum folks. They say, quote, <clears throat> quote, save girls sports, close quote. What do you say? I mean, uh, I think one transgender girl, or even if there was a couple others that come along in the coming years, are not harming girls sports, but it's amazing that we could come up with $500,000 to back up the lawsuits that might happen when they could have spent that $500,000 on girls sports to improve the poor fields, have the poor equipment, the poor uniforms, the lack of a good officiating. There's a whole lot of things there that we could do to improve girls sports, to bring it on par with boys sports. And we're spending $500,000 to uh, because of one girl who's been competing. It's just mind-boggling to me that that is what is happening. Oh, Sue, you beat me to my next couple questions. But yes, rumor has it that they will put $500,000 of our taxpayer money in, in reserve, so to speak, for the lawsuit that everyone knows is coming. And the ACLU has already said they're going to sue over this. And it'll be, you know, this will happen all over the country, the lawsuits. And I would certainly think that if you wanted to put $500,000 into Utah politics, I can think of equal pay, I can think of supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, and I can think of <clears throat> far other things I'd rather do. I wonder about Governor Cox. He was quite adamant, wrote an extremely long letter about why he was vetoing this bill. Many people have accused Governor Cox of sort of rolling over. Well, I'm going to veto that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but here he did step up. What do you think's going on that in him? Governor Cox has always, uh, as far back as I've known him anyway, been very touched by LGBTQ plus youth. Uh, he first, he made it into the national spotlight after the Pulse massacre because he came to the rally and talked about how he hurt and how we should take care of the community. And then during the conversion therapy uh, bill hearings when the conversion therapy bill died and there was a sit-in by some transgender youth at the Capitol, he went out and sat with them and touched with them. Last year, he spoke to uh, promising a ban and you could hear the emotions when he did his press conference. And again, this year, I think he is, you know, he's met our youth and that's why I say the youth can be impactful. He's a prime example. You know, we also saw Senator Thatcher on the Senate floor that last Friday night was very emotional about his experience with the youth. But for Governor Cox, uh, I, I greatly appreciated his letter. Well, um, you know, I would love to talk with him more about NCA athletes, which we're not talking about an NCA related bill. Uh, his letter was wonderful. Uh, the last page in particular really hammered home the point. And I've actually seen everyone uh, across the nation share just that last page because of the content of it and the way he expressed himself. So he's the fact that he's doing this in the face of a possible override uh, shows me that he is willing to take a political stand for our kids 
and take the damage that may come with it. Because like I say, this, this is one of those political red meat issues. So that means if he doesn't uh, go and eat the meat with the rest of the crowd, then he's going to pay the price. <laughs> um, and it's, it, so that says a lot about his character. And I see some people that are going in and saying, well, he's calling a special session. Well, yeah, he is. His schools are right now at risk of the lawsuits and there's no indemnification or funds there. So he has a responsibility to protect the schools. So if they're going to override his veto, call in a special session and make sure the schools and the Utah High School Athletics Association are covered yeah, it makes sense to me. And we could argue whether it should just be the schools that are covered versus the high school athletics association. Some people are like, I hear them say that, um, you know, why should we cover them? If it fails, then sports fails across the state and then everybody will learn their lesson. Well, do we really want to do that to all our kids too? So, you know, I'm, I think Governor Cox is doing all the right things. I think his heart is right where we need it to be for the transgender community. He is not a dictator, so he can't control everything. So in the face of something that he is not going to be able to stop, he's still taking a stand. And he made a very long and heartfelt statement on behalf of our youth. Yeah, and I, and I hope kids can I hope kids can latch onto that for the kids who are feeling marginalized. At least the governor is standing up for them because I did see that in his letter. And for folks who are interested, we'll put a link in the show notes. But that letter has been widely spread around in social media and whatnot. But, Sue, few minutes left here. Um, over the past few days, you know, we saw people light up the BYU mountainside, the Y, in trans colors, even though, of course, BYU has banned that activism. And I wonder how you see that this HB 11 veto may ignite a backlash against the backlash against trans kids. It seems like it's already happening. I I see that on social media. As we go through a, a year, a pandemic year, as it has been, I see, obviously, my echo chamber is going to be a lot around the transgender community. And yet I see this certain level of education going on that when there's a bill, there's a certain level of education that is higher to try and combat the bills. And then these last few days, it is just pegged out uh, the amount of information everybody's pushing out there because they're trying to impact the people from overturning the veto. So we're bringing more and more attention to everybody. And I think that's amazing. The I don't want the harm part, but like the why, I generally stay away from or stand back and let people who were in the LDS church uh, speak their hearts uh, related to how the LDS church treats them. It's not my space to, to comment since I'm not LDS, but I love um, the way that they've come together. The, the why being pink, blue, and white was amazing to me. Uh, I checked right after to make sure everybody was safe, no one was injured, and those types of things, because we do want everybody in the community to be safe. But all those people who have been impacted by their relationship with their church and faith were able to make a statement. And I think that's amazing. Uh, so more and more, this type of visibility is going to bring us into people's lives, where that 48% I talked about of people who have met someone who's open transgender are gonna start going up and then we'll have more support. 
uh, PRI study just came out recently. And believe it or not, the numbers for people in the LDS church that support, uh, or excuse me, LGBTQ uh, non-discrimination is sitting upwards of around 80%. Among LDS faith. In the LDS church. And it's that way across all religions, ranging from like 70 to 85%, uh, roughly. And so it's most of what we're seeing are people who are standing up as a minority that want to have a political wedge issue and are making a lot of noise. The Natalie Kleins at school boards and such, but they're the minority. So we just need to get everybody speaking up and saying, we don't want the minority driving our lives anymore. They're loud, but they're small. Good point. And just for listeners, we are going to be celebrating Transgender Day of Visibility. That's Thursday, March 31st. And we'll have Project Rainbow on the show, I believe next Tuesday is the scheduled day to talk about and preview that march and rally that will be on March 31st. So shout out to Visibility, Sue. And I know we're almost out of time, but until all this gets sorted out and until social justice prevails, how do you recommend that trans kids receive the family and the public sector support that they need, just like all kids need? What do you recommend? Well, one of the things that uh, I've seen more of is our nonprofits are starting to charge back now that we're coming out of the pandemic. So for adults, get involved with the nonprofits and help get the programs going again that may have been missing during the pandemic. So they're there for our youth. And then for the youth, reach out to the Utah Pride Center, to the various encircles, to Ogden Pride Center, to Davis Pride. Davis County is having their first Pride Festival here this spring ever. We're going to come back greater because we are larger in numbers and we have more supporters. We've been growing and growing, and the pandemic kind of made that not as visible as it used to be but everybody's sitting on the edge, ready to go. So let's get those services back there and let's make them available in particular for our youth and our transgender, intersex, non-conforming queer youth that are under the microscope right now. I mean, I just have to say it, everybody's queer, right? To some degree, um, it's just some people are more visible than others. Uh, and I know we have to let you go. I know we're almost out of time, but you know, it seems to me that all these backlash movements eventually fail, as do moral panics. You know, uh, rednecks now have mullets, so you know their their necks are covered. Gay people are happily married. Uh, the video game industry is doing just fine, I think. And you know, I started with Elvis Presley's hips, and of course, he's dead. Um, and I wonder, do you see? I wonder what you see for the next moral panic. And, you know, myself, I hope it doesn't include the LGBTQ plus IA community. But any idea what the next panic might be? I almost hesitate to say anything because it's almost like drawing a target. Okay. I think um, I've, I think what we're going to be doing is uh, I hope quickly we put these medical bills to rest. But I think we're going to be going through a few years of trying to right the ship on sports where there's going to be studies. There are many states that will probably be fine for the transgender youth and then other states that have already passed bills. A number of them are joined in court, so we're going to have to wait for the court system to go through the process. So this isn't going to be quick. So what, you know, really, what's next after that? It's really hard. You know, the schools are under attack. Are we going to turn that around quickly on books and what teachers can say? And, 
you know, if a, a student walks up to him and say, I'm gay, can we talk about it? You know, we're putting the fear of God in teachers that they don't even know what to say to the kid at that point without being fired. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say what these are going to be for the next few years, never mind what could be next after that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I just, it feels like those in power, if they have nothing else to say, it's good to create some hate just to keep something going. So no doubt there'll be something and we'll be talking about it on Radioactive. Sue Robbins, Equality Utah's Transgender Advisory Council, thank you for your volunteer work. Best wishes as an engineer. And let's keep talking about this. Well, thank you. I appreciate being able to come on always. I love Radioactive, obviously, and miss it. And uh, I'd love to come back as needed anytime. Oh, thank you very much, Sue. Uh, This is, of course, Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. I've been your host, your community co-host for the night. And we remain the show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creative. Keep it tuned because Democracy Now! is next. And it looks like we have just enough time to squeeze in another song. This is Dark Star by Chicano Batman on KRCL. Listeners, Community Radio of Utah. Meet Liz Schulte, host of Root Awakening, now on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. on KRCL. The reason why I actually started doing the show at that bizarro time is when I was baking bread in the morning, it felt like the music was too slow and I wanted some high energy music to kind of get me through baking off that bread. I wanted something with some like pizzazz and energy and oomph. I didn't want to fall asleep. I wanted to be up working because that's what I was doing. So my show kind of like resembles that. It's high intensity. It's like get work done music. I think all DJs kind of curate their shows based upon their individual needs. It is a lot of like bad brains and a lot of like aggressive, intense music, also paired with some like high beat ska. And I'm hoping I'm keeping people on their toes. Liz Schulte, host of Root Awakening, now in its new time slot every Wednesday night at 8, only on KRCL. As many as 2 million people have been displaced in Ukraine. The Utah Ukrainian Association has a list of ways you can help. Find them on Facebook under the handle Love Ukrainians or the Connect page of krcl.org.